0: Hey, FOMO Sapiens, March is Women's History Month, and to celebrate all the contributions of women in our society and in the business world, every episode this month features a fantastic female FOMO Sapiens. So listening into this month, we're going to have amazing new guests. They're going to tell you what they're doing, what they're building, and how they're doing it. And remember to thank the women in your life for all they have done for you and for society. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And today we're gonna talk about how you can build a massive global company with operations all over the place, that makes a real impact now. I know that sounds like a lot, but I'm gonna tell you something. My guest today is doing exactly that. Her name is Shivani Soroya, and she's the CEO and founder of Tala, a company that facilitates financial access to small business owners around the world by providing mobile financial tracking tools and direct flexible financing in order to help these businesses and their communities to lift themselves out of poverty. And since the launch of the company, Tala has served more than 6 million people with operations in Mexico, Kenya, Tanzania, Philippines and India. Now, Shivani holds degrees from Columbia University and Wesleyan, and before she started Thala, had worked in finance and ended up working at the UN, and she'll tell us all about how she went from the UN into building this huge business. And you're going to learn a lot today. There's just a lot of content here and really inspiring stuff, but we're going to get started just with how she got inspired to just get started, and her answer is pretty good on that one. We're also going to talk about how she uses radical honesty and gets to know her customer and how both of those concepts are really central to everything she does and how she makes them into superpowers. We're also going to learn how you can manage a cross-cultural team when you're dealing with lots of time zones and lots of personalities and cultures, and we're going to talk about how you can manage productivity and take care of yourself even when you have a role that's so global like what Shivani has. Now, my small ask today is to go back into the vault, the FOMO Sapiens vault, to find an episode by a gentleman whose name is Andrew Cooper. And this was November 29th, season three, way back in 2019, episode six of season three, to be specific. And he runs a company called Leapfrog. It's an impact investing firm. And we talk about a lot of the things we get into today with Shivani. How can you make money, but also do good in the world, right? Sort of do well by doing good. And so that's a really important topic, especially as we think about the role of capitalism going forward, not to get all grandiose, but it's a thing. All right. And now onto the interview. As usual, I started with the very same question. So I asked Shivani this, what's the most important decision you've had to make to get to where you are today?
1: I would say that the most important decision I had to make was just starting. Starting to work on Tala uh, before it was a company, before it was anything. It was literally just deciding that I would start. Um, And and I think the reason I struggled for a second to tell you like, was that a decision? Was it not a decision? I think there are these moments in time that are so compelling to all of us and that you believe in the inevitability or you have to decide to believe in that, (laughs) that you just start. And I think for me, if I look back, if I had not made that decision, um, I wouldn't be here today.
0: Let's go back to that time, right? So this was, you've been at this for a while. I mean, I think a lot of times we think things happen overnight, but of course, all the guests we have in the show, almost without exception, you know, it's a it's a long journey. And so has yours been a long journey. Take us back to those early days. Like, how did you come up with the idea? Why this? And what was that original idea?
1: When I first, you know, thought of doing something in this space, Um, I was was working at the UN Population Fund. I worked across nine different countries in West Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, as well as South Asia. And essentially, like, you know, I was an analyst. I was just there to collect data. I was there to understand whether, you know, maternal health programs or microcredit programs or other kinds of development programs were actually having a quantitative impact on the daily life of individuals. And the only way to back into that is to really understand our inputs and then understand where money goes throughout the system. And so uh, in order to get the data, since it wasn't sitting in a credit bureau, wasn't sitting in a bank account um, or in any kind of database, I started doing individual interviews. And I would go to individuals' homes in the morning, I would go to work with them. And I would sit there and understand how many customers came in that day. How many products did they sell? And essentially I was just sitting there tallying in my little notebook, you know, what was happening. I was like a walk in QuickBooks. I would go to the marketplace with them after they counted their day's cash. And I would understand how much they decided to buy certain groceries, certain things for the next day's inventory. I would see, you know, um, if they had any bills to pay, how they decided which bill to pay. Um, did they pay it in full or, you know, partially? Um, and then I would actually go back home because it was important to understand how much actually went to allowances or how much went into a lockbox um, or under a mattress. And I got to really understand, you know, hard money versus soft money, liquid money, you know, um, versus locked money, and. I guess, long story short, what happened was by seeing all of this movement of money, I was able to really believe in the potential of the segment, but more so, I saw an enormous amount of purchasing power. (laughs) And I was able to see the fact that, hey, if it wasn't so hard to kind of solve for these day-to-day needs, right? Um, And if we could actually better understand their capacity, maybe we could actually create a market opportunity where it benefits the customer. They're able to get access to the credit that they need, the financial products that they need that would kind of take away some of that anxiety as well as all of that kind of onerous mental math. And then two, on the marketplace side, we would actually be able to potentially like have an entirely new marketplace of consumers that could actually, again, be participants in the economy. So, my background actually, just to quickly tell you, I was an economist and data scientist. So, I was always looking at it from how do we actually essentially like create market forces (laughs) to Mm -hmm. solve these social problems? Um, And so, what I honed in on was the fact that we were missing this very valuable data, um, the data that I was seeing firsthand. And so, from there, I started to think about okay, where does this data exist? And by living and working in the markets, I was able to understand that. you know, when I paid my cell phone bill, or when I got paid, I received a text message. And so there was this record um, that was sitting there. It wasn't sitting in the place that I expected. And it's not sitting in a place where most financial institutions would go, but it was sitting potentially on our phones. And it was this kind of daily life data that was being recorded, both telling us consistency of bill payments, but also potentially behavior. And so I had this hypothesis that this kind of alternative data um, could be used to actually create a credit score. I had no background in this at all. (laughs) Um, But I I came back to the U.S. with this hypothesis in mind, um, realized that, you know, the U.N. wasn't going to necessarily let me go start a company to do this or wasn't looking to build a product. Um, So I actually went full circle back into the private sector, but I couldn't forget about this problem. And I kind of just kind of Continued to get frustrated that I couldn't find a company working on this. Nobody wanted to work with me on it. And eventually, the people around me really were just telling me, Well, why don't you just try it? And I didn't know what to do. So I decided to go learn how to code and essentially use my savings to then build the first version of what Tala was back then.
0: That's amazing. Uh, so you, it's, cause, you know, my, I'm thinking in my head, right? I'm thinking, when you start a business, so you had a lot of things that were different. You you had worked in in banking before. I, I, I look, I did a little research on you, but you know you were working at the UN, which you know that's that's awesome. UN's great, but it's not a business. It's an international organization. It's not a for-profit company. Uh, it has a, a bunch of different factors and constituencies it's dealing with. Then you know you decide to do a mobile app and 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 really focus on a technology solution. And so you're like, well, I don't know how to code. So you go and learn how to code. So you, you had all these potential roadblocks coming at you. And I wonder, you know, as you started, did you have a lot of doubt? Like, how did you overcome the feelings of like, oh man, I'm, I'm not good enough, or I don't know these things, or people aren't going to give me money when I'm looking for it. How how did you shut that voice down in your head?
1: I'll be honest. I didn't have it. I think Wow, and this think, is so cool. Think, okay, tell
0: us more. This is impressive. <laughs>
1: I, I think that, that that's kind of why when you ask the question about, you know, what's the hardest decision or the, the, the first decision that you made, it wasn't a decision. It was kind of just this, this thing that was, you know, I, I knew there was a problem that existed. I'd seen it firsthand. I'd seen the effects of the problem on the individuals that I was living and working with. So I saw the impact of that. Um, And then I also had this fundamental belief in these individuals. It was just it was something for me that I I believe so strongly in their potential and I still do. Um, And I really believe that at the end of the day, unless we include these billions of consumers, we will never actually have the economy that we
0: want globally. Now, you sit in the U.S., but you have operations in four different markets across the world. And, you know, what would be easy to do is to sit in your office and say, oh, you know, we're just going to come up with a concept like this or like that. And and people do that all the time. People sit in a L.A. or in New York and they think that they're creating something that's going to work in a Lagos or in a Nairobi or, you know, in a Shanghai or whatever. And... And, and I, it blows my mind still, but you gotta be out there in the field. So talk about, you know, I know you did these, these interviews, but, but how do you, how do you go out there and make sure that you have your finger on the pulse in these very different places where you're operating?
1: So the way that we've, we've done it at Tala is we, we do have a global team. And so we have offices, like you said, but it's not a matter of just having leaders in those places. It's actually ensuring that the functions that you want that are really close to your customers are there. And so we have user researchers, product managers, local marketers, um, comms folks, everybody that is really in charge, not even in charge, but is going to live and breathe the daily life of our customers is actually in our local markets. And so that way we can actually build in twofold. One, we can look at a global perspective. We can see the trends that are happening in fintech. Um, We can see these things and then bring that into our markets. But then the most important part, I think, of what we do is really listening and learning to our customers. Um, And that that has to be done by being really proximate to them.
0: And what do they tell you? I mean, what I'm curious, like, do you, are you just out in the field interviewing people when you're traveling? Do you have a way of capturing data? Because I think a lot of people, the thing that blows my mind about this company and why I thought it was so interesting to have you on is because you're not solving like a rinky-dink problem here. And the stats that I was reading about as I was researching, you know, we're talking 3 billion people, 40% of the planet, and there's an unmet need of 2.1 trillion of credit. So like... <laughs> It's a little overwhelming, frankly. But, you know, how do you get your hands on the very detailed information you need to to address this huge opportunity?
1: The founding belief at Tala is radical trust. And so for us, it always starts with this belief in people, which then makes us people that have to keep listening and learning, and we do that in multiple ways, right? So one, we are doing that by meeting our customers in person, and myself included, prior to COVID, it was like I didn't just go in and have business meetings. I actually went in and really, again, interacted with our customers. They had no idea who they were talking to, <laughs> right? Um, and I would sit in on meetings where they're giving us feedback, and they're actually showing me how they're using the product. They're telling me about why they they started to use, you know, Tala Credit. Um, and then at some point, I would say, "Okay, I'm the CEO." Now, what else would you tell me about not just how we build this product, but how would you want us to be as a company for you, right? Um, It then translates those kinds of values translate into how we build the product, translates into how we think about our approval rate strategies. So are we building a product for again, you know, 10 million people or the 3 billion? And so we can't rest until we are constantly increasing that approval rate and really again, including the 3 billion individuals. Um, So not just working in four markets, but globally. And then the last piece is really, how do you interact and engage with your consumer? Uh, It's not enough just to deliver credit to them from our perspective, it's to ensure that how, how we service and talk to them comes with dignity, it's not condescending. And so for me, it all kind of stems from this aspect of our founding value of radical trust. It's like, it's a feedback loop and so that Kind of relationship continues and continues. And so you find multiple mechanisms to be close to your customer, to listen and learn along the way.
0: You know, I, I had this experience as you're talking, my head is going to this experience I had. I worked with a company in Uganda called Phoenix, which does solar power. And the founder or, or the CEO at the time, uh, whose name is Lindsay, took me deep into the field. We, we got in her car and we drove, it was more like a Range Rover, and we drove Over to uh, the city called Jinja. And we then went into some villages outside and we sat in in a village that hadn't had electricity till six months prior. And we talked to the customers of the business. And these are people who were expressing what it was like to have for the first time electricity. And it was, you know, it was very informative. And so I think, you know, the thing is for anybody who's listening who's an entrepreneur, especially if you're focused on, say, the US, like, you think about how lucky lucky you are that you don't have to get on a plane and drive four hours into the Ugandan beautiful countryside, but still to get insights. And so being close to your customer no matter where you are is so important. Now, Shivani, as I think about your business, so right now you have operations in Mexico, you're in Kenya and Tanzania and the Philippines. I mean I'm wondering like I mean it's easy now, but like I'm like, hmm, why all those different markets? Is there some FOMO there? Like, why not pick one or pick a region? and do them all together, like it seems like you're just making it like even harder on yourself. So I wonder how you think about the fact that you're in like, I mean, just like, I mean, it's, it's like a nonstop workday when you're in four places that are, have such different geographies. So tell, tell us, explain us what, what, what you're thinking is there. Yeah.
1: Um, and, and also India,
0: by the way. <laughs> oh, okay. One more. <laughs>
1: um, so... I think it comes from this place of remembering that our vision is one that is global. Mm. Our our vision is to enable financial agency for the global underserved. And so if we did only focus on one market, we really would not be getting to that, you know, that total vision that Tala has. Um, I think the other aspect here for us is if we prove it in one country, sure. But again, if we think about the fact that really the goal here is actually to prove that this data and this kind of um, kind of perspective that we have, that there is potential waiting to be unlocked across multiple markets. We needed to prove that our models could work from Kenya to the Philippines, to Mexico and to India. And I think the next piece of it was not just proving that our credit models can work and that we can build a scalable business as a result of that in terms of portfolio, but it's actually the fact that we could actually build global infrastructure, which is really one of the key pieces of why this problem exists. And so we really needed to come from a place of saying, sure, let's focus and prove one market, which we did. But after that, it became really now we need to prove that this actually can be solved globally.
0: Now, you just raised a Series E $145 million, which is no joke. And you've raised a ton of money over time. And, you know, I was just talking to an entrepreneur today who closed their Series A recently, $7 million. And they had their first board meeting and they were they were all, I mean, they were fired up, but they were stressed. They're like, well, our investors need us to move quickly. And so we need to deploy capital really fast. And my, my reaction to that was, well, of course your investors want you to do that because they can only lose one time their money, but they can make many multiples. You're the entrepreneur, this is your company, you have to decide the pace. But I do understand there is pressure from investors, and when you raise that kind of money and you have global scale, you you know you can be tempted to invest really quickly. And what happens then, of course, is could be could be great or it could be wasteful. You can end up in a place where you, you spent all the money and you didn't get where you wanted to go. So I'm curious, as you think about building your global empire, how do you deal with that pressure? Because I imagine you feel it, um, and and you have to make decisions and deal with it every day.
1: I think that. You know, if I go back to this this aspect of like what are the three things I think a lot about? I think for us as an organization and an executive team, the first one is actually moving with a sense of urgency. And it's not, I think the difference at Tala is it's not because of investor pressure or um, competitor pressure, but it's actually because of the magnitude of the problem. And so I think the thing that makes us wake up every day wanting to move with urgency is we know really how big of a problem this is. We hear it from our customers all the time. And so for us, it's if we don't do it, then we don't actually think anybody else is thinking about this customer in the same way that we are. And so there's really that sense of just like responsibility. And then the second piece that we think a lot about is execution and problem solving. And so um, I think there's urgency. And then to your point on how do you do this prudently? How do you do it responsibly? How do you do it in a way that you're not losing everything? That's, I think, where you have the differentiator on the kind of team you build. So you have people that are hungry to solve the problem because they're so passionate about the mission and this consumer. But then they're smart enough and have the skill sets to really think about how do we actually do this in a very controlled and like you know execution manner, and I think that's the things that I I like really try to instill in our team and, and culture.
0: FOMO. FOMO. Now, I once had on this show somebody who I'm sure you know it was Kate Ryder of Maven, and. Um, and we were, t- I asked her in the beginning, it's funny. I had read an interview that she had given, I think to Sequoia, put it on their website. And she said, it was like, what's the question you don't like being asked? And she said, the question I don't like being asked is, how do you do it all? Because, you know, she has two, two three kids now, I believe. And, you know, she runs this company and does all this stuff. And and she's like, nobody asked the men that question, which is a super fair point. And so I, I was like, I will never do that to my guests. And so I'm not asking that question, but I do want to ask, a a little question about sort of how you manage, because you're, as you said, you're operating in these disparate geographies. You're, you know, you're based in the States. You do have small kids. Um, You have a big team. You have lots of money to deploy. I mean, you have a lot going on. How, you know, I, when I, I just, I feel tired, but I'm looking at you right now on the video and and you look pretty well rested, but (laughs) I just want to understand for people who are trying to do a lot of things, whether they're female entrepreneurs, whether they're dads, whether they're single people in their 20s, whatever it is, what are some of the secrets that you can share with them about being effective when you're managing a lot of stuff and potentially across geographies?
1: I think um, the big thing is understanding your role in the organization. And you know, I think I've gotten better and better at that. I think it's something that I'm continuing to learn. Um, but it's it's really thinking about, okay, what can you uniquely do that it's gonna move the needle. And for me right now, I think a lot of that is cutting through the noise, right? If we think about how we do planning, it's really ensuring that I am, I am ensuring that as we go into the next year, we're one team, one focus, one singular problem we're solving for, one question. As opposed to, we could get stuck in this like, oh, we do credit, we do savings, we do these things. That it's actually who's the person that is unifying that, right? And, and actually, again, sitting at this place of holding that vision and then continuing to distill it into the one year, the three year, the five year. Um, so that's, that's partially what I have to keep reminding myself is day to day as I'm having conversations, it's remembering I don't need to come in and make all the decisions anymore because you're right, that will create burnout. And it also doesn't create empowerment in the organization but it's how do I provide the context on what we're trying to do and that singular vision um, and how I want us to be working together. That is what I think I try to keep coming back to. And then the second thing I think that helps me kind of cut through the noise is um, two kind of practices that I like to do is one, I I actually love going for morning walks. And so I wake up really early I don't know why, but the thing that like I love the most in life, obviously outside of family and, and, and uh, Tala, is I love to see the sunrise. And so I get up every day around uh, you 4.30, know, 4:35 a.m., <laughs> but it's a really early morning walk. Um, and that allows me to quiet my mind and really kind of think about the day and process what's going to happen. And then the second thing is that I also journal. Um, and that's the way that I end. And it's really a small practice. I don't write for more than maybe five to 10 minutes. But um, I think those two things are kind of how I start and end. Um, and then they kind of enable me to to stay on a path, hopefully.
0: I like that. It's like you're like bookending mindfulness into your daily routine, which is great. And again, you know, what I love about, about that is like going for a morning walk. And I know some people who do that every day. And I have a, a friend who... She walks like four miles every morning and that's her time. Like she's not a meditator. That isn't the format for her, but she's putting into her schedule space for thinking and, you know, the time to not completely, you know, freak out before you get into your day. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Now I'm curious, you know, you, you were, I have to imagine before the pandemic, you were probably somebody who lived on planes and as somebody who was also, like that. I mean, I went to like 20 countries in 2019 or something like that. Um, probably we, we were passing each other in airports all over the place. Probably. And then, you know, nobody was traveling. And so now we're getting back at it and we're rethinking the mix. And so, how are you thinking about for yourself as somebody with a global team and global operations, where the travel and the FaceTime is going to fit in versus, you know, working remotely for the future?
1: I think you said it correctly. It's it's really trying to be intentional about it because we don't wanna just spend tons of time in the airport again. <laughs> we don't wanna go back to that either. And so for me, I think it, you know the thing I miss the most is actually getting to see our customers and our team. And so I think I'm, I'm really excited to do those kinds of trips again um, and find ways to make it more efficient. So do I do two countries in one? Um, how do I do it so that again, I'm, I'm getting the quality time, but it's also not, you know, a constant runaround. Um, and then when it comes to things that I used to do, whether it's, you know, I live in L.A. and so, you know, flying to San Francisco for the day, I don't do that anymore. And I don't know if I would unless it was something really, again, like very important. Instead, I do think that we've actually all learned that we can create these bonds through video, um, or even realizing not everything actually has to be on video, right? But um, FaceTime, I think, can be something that you're doing to make it more special. And it's it's something that you can't get on video. Um, and so I think that's how I have to kind of ask myself what I would travel for. And then, to be honest, in terms of conferences as well, um, I actually look at them more as like, Instead of networking, I think of it as I would travel to a conference now where I'm actually actively learning as well. And so there has to be that additional layer for me versus just the networking aspect.
0: All right. You heard it here. So if you see Shivani in the airport in Nairobi or in Mexico City, you'll know there's a reason for it. It's not just remote control. All right, everybody. So if you want to learn more about Tala, you can go to Tala.co or you can find the company on Instagram and on Twitter at Tala Mobile. All right, founder and CEO of Tala, Shivani Soroya, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you so much. FOMO.
0: If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMeguinness.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMOSapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO